Paranormal Truth and Reality with host Chris Houston. A show for those with a passion for the paranormal. And now, welcome to the show. Paranormal Truth and Reality. I'm Christopher Houston, and we're here with author Douglas Robinson. Douglas actually wrote a set of vampire novels on the lore of the vampires. He's an accomplished uh, writer as well as an academic in studies and scholar, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his trilogy today and uh, the links and, and, well, really what he wants to discuss about the vampire culture. Welcome, uh, Douglas. It's good to hear from you. Thank you, sir, for having me. Oh, Absolutely. So I guess we should probably start from the beginning. What uh, what fascinated you about the vampire culture? What made you kind of write vampire novels, so to speak? When I was very young, say around eight years old, um, well, you know, from eight to thirteen, uh, I just thought about them a lot, and I cared for them, and uh, I didn't really see vampire anything until my family moved from Chicago to Alabama. And about that time, I saw the gothic soap opera Dark Shadows. And so I got started thinking about what this condition is uh, about that time because the character of Barnabas Collins sort of touched my heart. Then through the years of thinking about them, praying for them, uh, to fast forward to 1983, I took a fiction writing class that summer. My second, you know, you go to your little fiction writing class and you it's about 10 weeks long and you write two little short stories and they teach you the basics of writing, like this is plot, this is character, this is dialogue. Well, my second short story in this fiction writing class was essentially the the ending of the first novel-length story, Silently Comes the Night. It introduces you to a vampiric girl by the name of Macon, and at that time, her relationship with a young man who does not know who and what she is, his name is Thomas. Well, at the end of the first story, Thomas is exposed to her blood, and in the second story, he's becoming vampiric as well. I alter the spelling in the stories to V-A-M-P-Y-R rather than the traditional V-A-M-P-I-R-E because I'm emphasizing people that are living, uh, people that have to drink blood to live, and largely they're just sort of stuck in this condition. But after I finished that little fiction writing class in 1983, Over the next two months, I continued to see what would be the equivalent of 16 novel-length stories, uh, all centered around this vampiric girl. Some of them are in the past. Some of them are in what I call the present. The storyline begins in 1993 and goes to about 1999, so it's not our present day, but it's in the current times. Hmm. Well, it sounds like very fascinating lore. Um, I know that, uh, clinically speaking, uh, a lot of people don't understand that vampirism in general or the obsession or drinking of blood is actually a real disease. Um, That uh, some people can actually get very 
hooked on, I guess you could say, in the standard culture. And there is an actual vampire culture that's out in listeners, so that you knew that that's out in America. Um, and uh, they have a little bit of a different belief than what most people think. <laughs> Uh, So there is definitely a difference that um, you can express through novels, um, which is fascinating in the approach. And I like the way you change the name a little bit, because uh, uh, people mistake vampires for being evil and sexual, and and, uh, there's a lot of different forms that the vampire has taken throughout the years of history, if that makes sense. (laughs) Certainly does. Uh, You know, personally... uh... I am a Christian in the first place, and the reason that I jumped on this storyline is because, uh, first of all, I felt God leading me to do it, and uh, especially with my life of sort of uh, yearning for them, but the expression of vampiric people as I understand them I talk about people that are physically changed. There are a lot of human blood drinkers, and the second story of the storyline introduces you to some of those. Uh, But when I say a vampiric person, I'm really focusing a lot on uh, a physically changed person who has to drink blood to live, and pretty much you understand them better if you realize that they're literally stuck. Well, it would be like any, um, and I use this term lightly, but it would be like any disease. People picture vampires as a mythological creature that um, has deep roots, but, you know, scientifically in, uh, in fiction, a lot of times they've kind of taken that reverse role. In fact, there are some television shows that are adapted from novels now that have taken that approach that just came on. And... Um, they discuss it more as a a disease, kind of like any viral contaminant or any other disease. Once the body adapts to it, sometimes that disease requires you to continue that path. Um, and drinking blood could be a part of that. <laughs> yes, I, I can see where they come to that conclusion. Yeah, it's it's actually quite fascinating to... Um, to speak to an author that's actually came to some of those conclusions. It's It's kind of common in the fiction world to run into this in a handful of novels. A lot of times they regress into television shows and so forth, and they only discuss the bloodborne pathogen disease or this is how it's spread from one person to another because people can relate to that. And it does make sense because when you're adapting to any type of disease, well, even zombieism with the zombie writers that are out there, technically it is plausible to have a zombie, just not the way people portray it in some of the TV shows. <laughs> yeah, uh, understand. And, you know, vampires could be the same way. It is plausible to have a disease that causes the reactions of vampirism, just not quite the way it's mystically brought out in a lot of cases. Um, lycanthropy is the same way. Werewolves is an example. Where lycanthropy is a physical disease uh, that most people don't quite understand. The disease does cause people to grow hair. The disease can cause people to be mentally ill and and long-term exposure. Um, And in rare cases, in rare psychological cases that are throughout history that you can find a handful of, it can also cause people to be very animalistic. 
because they're separated from society. So the psychological disorder comes in, and now you're separated from society, you're animalistic, you look like an animal, bam, you're a werewolf. <laughs> well, that's so. what they would call it. Yep. Yeah, so it, it's actually quite fascinating to, to talk to somebody that um, that can relate with that a little bit. So let's let's go into a little bit of detail about your books and what you want to share with the audience, because here we're a little bit different at Paranormal Truth and Reality. I don't have a series of questions like most people on radio shows. This is all about the guests, so it's what you want to express, what you want to discuss with the audience, what you really want to get by in your books and your life and so forth. So let's kind of go into that a little bit, and I'm just going to hand the mic over to you and let you talk about what you feel comfortable with telling the audience. Well, let me um, start out. You know, these I see these people as real. Even though I call Macon and all the rest of it a fictional character, I think that she exists, and I think people like this do exist. And the underlying thing about this storyline is that in the first place, I saw it in one shot. That is, uh, that summer in 1983, I saw Thomas, I saw Macon, I saw his sister, his parents. You meet another vampiric girl in the second story. Her name is Janine. Uh, Janine, at that time, is with a little seven-year-old girl by the name of Alicia. And she was raising Alicia as her own, although... Alicia's father, Nolan, is a blood cult leader, which means this is a person who thinks that drinking blood is going to make him more powerful and live longer. And so as part of a blood cult, they routinely sacrifice people, and he is a very, very bad person. And he sets out to, uh, well, Janine finds out that Nolan wants to kill Alicia, so she takes Alicia and runs. Uh, while at the same time Macon is with Thomas and he's he's adapting and trying to understand what has happened to him. His human life is, you know, ending, and he's going to have to adjust to this whole new circumstance. Uh, he has become like her now, and he has to drink blood now to survive, and he's coping with that. And in the second story, his sister is the would-be journalist, and he she is finding out all kinds of stuff about his experience in Trenton that don't add up. And Macon comes to their house and essentially rescues Thomas from the wilderness. And, uh, you know, Kimberly finds out a lot more about the situation than Thomas thinks she will. But Kimberly is a very tender-hearted, very inquisitive, brilliant girl which means there's probably all sorts of places that she could get into trouble. Uh, When I pray about this and seek God regarding people like this, uh, my, my understanding of what I am supposed to do is that I am supposed to protect them. When I talk about vampiric people, I most often say we and me and us. I'm not vampiric but I count myself with them. There are a couple of things that people need to know about vampiric people, uh, and that came out in the storyline. 
Now, to you, it's a storyline you've not yet seen and you've not yet experienced. I have the first two stories written, and I'm looking at the next three. But in my mind, all these events that take place in Macon's life is just like steps uh, that you're going up a set of stairs. I'm guiding you into a revelation of what these people think like and what they feel like and what they and sometimes what they do, and sometimes how they die. Uh, Macon is not um, immortal. She is not uh, invulnerable. She can be hurt. Uh, she can be killed. Uh, in the second story, the vampiric girl Janine is killed. So I'm not talking about people that are powerful in the... Uh, typical vampire way, I'm talking about people that are reachable, and it's my goal that you understand as much as possible about where they hurt, uh, and how they have to live, and what they have to do to survive. In a large part, if you want to really understand them, think about what you would do today if you had to drink blood to live today. When you're uh, trapped in that life, uh, it's not the kind of glamorous thing that Hollywood portrays. It's very, uh, it's very hard. You and, know, I can relate with that a little bit because um, I've, I've been dealing with the paranormal community for almost 25 years now, and um, it's the same thing with a lot of the other situations. Uh, people glamorize a lot of this stuff, but reality is, if it is real, and sometimes when it is real, for instance, paranormal study, paranormal research, and even those people that claim to see ghosts, it's not as glamorous as people think. It's not the way people think. It's not how the people think. Uh, to be frankly honest with you, most of my job when I'm out in paranormal study research and application is an incredibly boring job. <laughs> Um, I've met very many people that claim to speak to ghosts where it's a little bit different. I mean, this becomes a regular part of their life. They didn't ask for it. They didn't want it, but they're stuck with it, and they right. have to learn how to live with it. So I can understand that a little bit uh, and even relate to it a little bit. It's like any disease or any situation or any career path or any skill, uh, um, any ability. If you want to talk about abilities where people get into you know, superhuman abilities and so forth, some of those things... Uh, become a curse in itself, I guess you could say, because you have to learn how to deal with it and you have to learn how to cope with it. <laughs> right, right. Now, uh, when I was praying about these things originally, uh, the Lord gave me two scriptures to help explain them. They're both in the Old Testament in the book of Joel. It is Joel 2, chapter 2, verse 2 which talks about a day of darkness, clouds, gloominess, and thick darkness. And the second verse is in chapter 3, verse 14, where it talks about multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. As I thought about these specific scriptures, the four uh, types of like darkness, clouds, gloominess, and thick darkness, as I meditated over these things, I saw that these specific uh, characteristics 
or how it manifested in the earth. If you look at clouds, which is the leaf covering, uh, there are specific people that go through what I call partial conversion. They're still largely human, but they have to drink blood now. It is possible for a normal human to get a mild psychological and physiological addiction to blood, although they may not be vampiric in the sense that I'm talking about. But uh, there are some people that, that come under the category of clouds. Second category, gloominess. I call that iniquity in the family line. Uh, iniquity in the family line, you know, like some people have a tendency to smoke or drink. Uh, blood drinking can also fit in there. One of the specific characters in the story, his name is Stefan, and he was a friend of Macon. And he is a man essentially from Italy in the uh, late 1700s, 1800s. But he had a tendency to drink blood in his youth, and when he finally started drinking blood, he became vampiric in the true sense. Now, darkness involves the occult in some way, generally speaking. When Macon became vampiric, uh, her father had runes and occultic things around, you know, he lived in fear and had occultic runes around his neck. Uh, that's what gave it, quote, permission, unquote, to stick to her. And when she was attacked, she was exposed to vampiric blood, and here we are today. And then about midway through the storyline, you, you approach thick darkness, which is a much more profound manifestation. And uh, it sort of borderlines on what people call the occultic vampirism, even though they're not undead. When I was thinking about this storyline, uh, you know, I had seen it, and I realized that there seemed to be a pattern to the stories. Uh, love, grace, compassion, and right with God. Each of the four story blocks have an undercurrent in them. Like, silently has uh, an undercurrent of love there. In this case, Macon does love Thomas, and she's even sacrificially doing what she has to do to protect his life and, you know, see to his needs, especially in the second story. There's an undercurrent of grace in Rites of Passage because, you know, Janine is facing a situation alone, and all of these people are arrayed against her, but grace keeps showing up. In the third story, compassion will show up. In the fourth story, right with God will show up. And that's why I think that, you know, God is helping me with this. Uh, I think these people should be able to have life offered to them. In the different ways that I've tried to approach different ministries and churches, they've sort of not really received this, but... Uh, through Nicole, I have a single-page handout, which is just sort of like a little primer on all the different types of people who drink blood. Now, those that I call my children, 
are true vampiric people in the center of the whole thing, then all around it you see all the other manifestations. The thing that is important to know about vampiric people specifically uh, in the uh, sacrifices story, which is about three-fourths the way into the storyline, Macon is chained to a uh, dungeon wall next to a assembly of God preacher named Corey. And through that experience, they're in this dungeon about three days and they're talking. And throughout the conversation, Corey eventually leads Macon to become a Christian because her heart opens up to what Corey is telling her. The thing that people need to know about vampiric people specifically is that, uh, especially in a ministry setting or a church setting, unless you see them, uh, they will not receive anything that you say about God, blood, Jesus, forgiveness, grace, or any of that, unless you see them. And what I mean by seeing is that you have to see what they have become and choose to love them anyway. Uh, most of the time when I'm talking about the storyline, I don't necessarily get to talk about this aspect of it. But understanding this about them before you actually meet one, especially in a church setting, is very, very vital. Well, it's and, generally, um, it's it's actually interesting that you bring that up. I, I grew up in Christian faith, obviously. Uh, well, the listeners know this. You don't know that. But I grew up in Christian faith, and one of the things that we were taught and um, I was traditionally Baptist. Uh, I eventually studied all beliefs and faith, believe it or not, because that's a part of um, becoming a paranormal historian and understanding differences in theology and so forth. But the one generalized concept in Christianity that a lot of people don't do is still based in your story a little bit and what you just said, and that is in order to truly accept somebody into your faith and bring them to God, you have to first see who they really are and accept that situation. You don't judge them for it. Because oh, judgmental nature and judgmental nature is not really the basis of what Christianity or God is about. It's his job to do the judgments. It's your job to accept them into your faith and hopefully change their heart. <laughs> so it's interesting you brought that up. Well, the second facet is the other side of the coin of all of that, once they become saved. Now, Macon is a Christian girl even to this day, and Janine was, so yes, they can get saved. But the the trick is that after they're saved, they still have to drink blood to live. You know, just because they've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, their their need their need for blood doesn't just go away. And the church can't fix it. You can't heal it. You can't change it. Um, you know, uh, because it's a physical thing, and you they're not sick, as you would call sick. Uh, Technically speaking, their bodies are thrown forward into a very, very aggressive regeneration and acceleration and metabolic change. The reason they don't appear to age as a normal person is because, like in Macon's case, well, like in our case as a person, you know, we eat all different kinds of things. 
uh, you know, proteins, vegetables, uh, fruits, and all different things. When we consume food, it has to go through our digestive tract until it's finally put into a uh, form that it can be absorbed by the body and used for energy. Well, to understand why this is different for a vampiric person, blood is a very singular food source, meaning that uh, their bodies don't have to do all of the work that yours did to to take that blood and use it as an energy source. You already did all the work. So in this case, their uh, their bodies change into a very very, very efficient uh, engine that makes more of their metabolism available for maintenance and repair. Meaning, in a human's case, say 20% of your total energy expenditure is given to maintenance and repair. In Macon's case, uh, in the third story, she's in an accident and she gets under the attention of these doctors in Texas. And as they're studying her, they're not only trying to figure out what she is in her condition, but, uh, you know, I guess they're looking at their Nobel Prize or whatever they can get for science. But eventually, they, they have to understand her as a person. But... Uh, her internist, Dr. Benjamin, only found, you know, found about 75% of her metabolism was given to maintenance and repair. And that's after they dosed her with uh, heparin and after they did her with an x-ray and all these different things. In her native state, in her natural state, I think the percentage of repair would be closer to the mid-90s. So you can see, in their case, because so much of their physical energy is given to maintenance and repair, which is why they appear, quote, young, even though so many physical years have passed them by. Uh, that's a way of sort of uh, explaining why they appear uh, young for so long. They do that's not nice. die of old age. Uh, when they die, they die of massive body trauma. That that would, I mean, I can see where that would happen. Um, trauma on the internal organs would probably be a major situation, and prolonged exposure to uh, to consuming blood. Plus, you have a lot of other situations that revolve during that situation. So, even if you were to age slower, if you're still technically human then reality is one of these things are going to catch up to you. <laughs> uh, people often try to explain uh, vampiric people in terms of this or that condition or this or that disease or this or that symptom, such as people that are have an aversion to sunlight or people that have some condition that causes them to have to drink blood. But as I've seen Macon uh, for many, many years, it's really its own unique uh, thing 
because everything inside of their body changes to align to make them a blood drinker. Their major organs are repurposed. Their, uh, you know, their eyesight and everything else about them becomes sharper. You are literally dealing with a physically changed blood drinking human predator. I don't sugarcoat predator in the storyline, and I don't sugarcoat predator when I'm talking about them. This is what they actually are. And, uh, you know, you don't want to be foolish in a situation like that. And you don't want to provoke someone like this. And so I'm just throwing that out there for what, for, for people to have wisdom. If you realize that you are dealing with a person like this, uh, the best thing that you can do is be nice and try to understand their situation and don't judge them like this is what I would do if I was in this situation because you're not. And you could never really get there. I wrote the storyline because people need understanding of us. Not knowledge of us, but you need understanding of us. Well, I can certainly understand that because that applies a lot of times to many, many things. And again, I deal with that on my end very often in terms like evil, in terms like demon, in terms like ghost, uh, entity, and so forth. And there are situations where... I stick with the same point because I've been doing it for so many years that you just stuck with. There are situations where you need to be aware. Some things you confront, you need to understand how these things are, what these things are, and how they operate. Because if you don't, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous situation. Um, A lot of people throughout communities, as as you explained earlier, they fantasize a little bit. They put... um, unnecessary thought from media and other books that have dramatized things so massively into a situation to where they don't quite understand those guidelines, I guess you could say, those borders, and they don't really understand what's what. So in a case like you're describing, if a vampire is real, then yes, they they have emotions like everybody else. They have uh, love, kindness compassion, but they're also very dangerous, and you have to understand those guidelines, and you have to understand those situations before you go walking into it, Um, which is similar to what I teach in a lot of other avenues, especially when you're using the term demon, though very, very rare. You have to understand that these things are not what you see them as. Some people glorify the word demon, some people fear the word demon, but reality is In the real literal sense, the word demon is totally different than what people make it out to be on media, and sometimes that can be very dangerous. It's not something to fool around with. I would think the vampires are kind of the same way, only you're taking more aspects of human nature and putting it in there, because the real term demon doesn't have aspects of human nature. They they kind of don't see us that way. But I can certainly relate a little bit to that, because there are dangers in everything when you're dealing with things that you don't comprehend or understand, so you have to be very careful how you weigh yourself into those. That's very true. Uh, People have sometimes asked me whether a vampiric person just has a demonic spirit in them. And it's been my general experience that 
they they are no more or less inhabited by demons than the general population. Now, I uh, was once attending a ministry that had a great deal of spiritual authority and things like this, and we regularly cast out demons and things like that. And it's not like you see in the movies where it's a big protracted uh, thing. Uh, in, in the instances that I saw myself, it was a simple matter of the minister talking to the person for a few minutes and getting them to express that they did not want the demon there any longer. And then largely the person takes authority over it in Jesus' name and says, you know, leave. And the person has to say, leave. And uh, from that moment on, it's sort of like Jesus' analogy of having a house that's swept clean. Well, the demonic spirits will try to come back. You just have to make sure that the house is occupied with who we call the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost so that they don't have a place to come back to that's swept clean. Uh, you know, the you're under the blood and you have the spirit in you and on you and you know you're studying the word of god and so forth so they don't have a place to just walk back in well and that um um getting into a more in-depth sense of that and studying all of the religions when you're dealing with the sense of demons and true evil and oppression and things along those lines a lot of it is understanding that through faith, um, whichever faith that you choose, and in uh, my case it's God, in other cases it could be other things, but it generally narrows down to faith in yourself and the higher powers involved. Uh, and what I mean by that is, like any personal demon, whether it be addiction or otherwise, in most cases, you can conquer those addictions just like you can conquer that demon. But you have to have faith in yourself, and you have to have faith in a higher power in order to do so. Once you do that, there's no room for that in your in your environment anymore. So yes. these things being non-physical, but very, very real, can disappear, and it all narrows down to the human want to do so. Um, so I can definitely relate with that. A little bit different than your vampires, of course, obviously, because your vampires can't just get rid of the drinking of blood. But um, that goes into uh, more in-depth detail, like in viral contaminants and things along those lines. I know you don't like to call it a sickness in a sense, but medical, medically speaking, um, they would. They would look at it as a blood disease. And a blood disease sometimes, if a contaminant takes over the blood and starts to take over the blood, the only way to stop that is to put more blood into the system. And it can attack other things psychologically, neurologically, and otherwise. So it could be very easy that you have two types of diseases working together and that disease turn you into something a little bit more aggressive than you used to be, reduce your aging process and so forth, uh, which I see in a lot of science fiction novels. <laughs> well, the... I think the thing that's specific about my storyline and my understanding it's a little different. I prayed for them and sought to understand. When I wrote the storyline, it wasn't like I sat down and said, oh, I need to create a vampire or I need to concoct 
You know, it's just like creating a fictional detective. If you think of a brilliant phys- fictional detective, certainly Sherlock Holmes comes to your mind immediately. Well, if you wanted to create a detective, you'd think about the attributes and how they solve cases and so forth and so forth. But when I saw Macon, I didn't create her in my mind. I just saw her. Uh, When this stuff opened up to me in 1983, it was like a movie playing inside my head, like a television screen. Uh, When I was in a a classroom that same summer, uh, I was in the center of the classroom, and we had a little task where, you know, they start saying something to the first person in the room, and then they turn around and say something to the person behind them, and uh, they just pass what they're saying on from person to person. Well, by the time it got to me, the person in front of me said, Two men are dragging this semi-conscious woman down the street. I don't remember to this day what I actually said in response to that, but as soon as the girl in front of me said that to me, and I was supposed to say something to the person behind me, I looked up and I saw these two men dragging this semi-conscious woman down the street, literally. And that essentially became my first short story where a... uh, young man is on vacation in Las Vegas and he follows this scene and he's curious about this situation. He follows him into a room and largely is framed for murder. It, it was my first little short story, but the point I'm making is that I started seeing in 1983, including Macon and all the rest of these vampiric people, And that's part of the reason why I think that what I saw is real, because I didn't just sit there and make them up. I didn't didn't make up Janine, I didn't make up Alicia, I didn't make up Nolan, all the rest of the characters, the rest of the storyline. It was just there in one big, just bang, here's everything. Well, you humanized things a little bit, which is what I think is unique. I um, When I started my writing career a long time ago, and I'm about to rehash a new set of writings that I put on the wayside that's a whole group of stories about werewolves, ironically, um, but uh, I was told from a very famous writer that critiqued my work early on that sometimes the best writers allow the story to write itself. It just comes to you, so to speak, kind of like what you're saying. The characters write themselves. The stories write themselves. All you're doing is just putting down what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and what you're dreaming or believing for some reason. So the knowledge is given to you. You put it on paper. You publish it. <laughs> well, that, that sounds easy, but, you know, there's a, in my specific case, I had to learn uh, what I was doing. Uh, oh, it's a complicated process. If anybody's ever tried it in in, in in detail, it can be it can be rough, especially if you're dealing with a culture like you're dealing with, um, because it takes a lot of research, a lot of understanding, a lot of. If you really want to to have a feeling for these characters or the reality, you have to dive in. You have to learn it. <laughs> right. Uh, when I wrote "Silently Comes the Night," which is the first story of the storyline. Uh, my first draft took me three years. 
then I entered it in a little contest of some type, and I won some editorial help. And with that editorial help, I went back and wrote a second draft of Silently, which took me another three years. Then about that time, I couldn't seem to go forward with it anymore. I I had gone as far as I could go. So I went off and wrote other things. But in 2010, I felt led to, very strongly led to pick it up again. And by the beginning of 2011, I went back through silently and re-rendered the scenes and finished it. And then I started writing Rites of Passage, which is the second story of the storyline. And that took me a year. And then by the time I finished the editing and the typesetting and all the rest of it, to get it in book form, it was uh, 2013 or so. But I'm I'm very thankful along the way because, you know, these people are on my mind pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, The reason that I wrote the storyline is because I care about them and also care about you, that is, human people. Because when you find out that people like this exist, I mean really exist, uh, you're going to lose your mind a little bit and I'm hoping to take the pressure off, sort of like a tank that's building up all of this pressure, and there's a relief valve on the top of it. Well, that's what my storyline does. It it takes the pressure off to keep you from just totally blowing up. Well, that's a Uh, good thing. Uh, I know a lot of listeners are probably going, I'm not sure how to take that, but I'll give a little bit of a story background that I don't share with most people. I think, listeners, this is the first time you've actually heard it from me, even though you'll be seeing my story on television briefly um, in a TV show that's going to be coming out a little later on this year, and I'm going to discuss it on a couple other shows. Reality is, when you get hit with a paranormal situation that you can't explain and you physically become a part of this environment that you know it's real. You go through a series of situations. The first one is, and I'll be very frank about it, you think you're nuts. This couldn't have happened. This isn't logical. But then when you get past that and find out that you're not, and these things are still here, and now you know, you have the second portion of this that comes in, which is a little bit of fear and and a clarification at the same time. The world becomes a different place. And that's the easiest way to explain it. Some people run from it. Some people confront it 100%. Some people hide for the rest of their life. Um, If you confronted a vampire and realized a vampire was real, then you may do any one of all of these. You'll do all of these things somewhere along the line, just like you would if you ran across a werewolf or if you ran across a ghost or if you ran across real demons, as an example. It changes your life. Even if you don't become a part of that world, it changes your life. The reality sinks in that there is more out there that can't be explained. And no matter how many years you try to solve it, and I've been trying to solve it for 25, there are some things you just simply aren't going to be able to solve. (laughs) So it's good to have somebody that tries to prepare people for a situation like that. And in your own way, writing your novels could help. Well, you realize the dimension and the explanation of why things are the way they are, it's a more complex, more diverse structure than what you thought. 
Yeah, yep. and and it's beyond explanation in a lot of situations because logically we're raised, we're educated, we're told it's this way. And though the paranormal falls into a situation where everything in science and education is unexplained, once they explain it, it becomes normal. It's no longer paranormal. It becomes normal. It's a regular cycle of life. So when you're trained that way and you run into a situation, whatever it be, that is 100% unexplainable no matter how much you can put into it, no matter how much logic you can put into it, it clarifies and opens the mind a little bit more, which is also a scary thing if you're not ready for it. <laughs> well, you do have to have, uh, you know, be brave. And uh, I, I would hope in my stories that I leave people with hope. Well, I would think that's a good thing. Uh, and from what you're telling me, and I haven't had a chance to read through all of them yet. I just started on the first one um, after I found out that you were going to. And I apologize. We wanted to get you on sooner, but I uh, had a couple of technical issues on my end that we just got operational. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading through the whole thing. But uh, uh, I think so far from what I've read and from what you're telling me, the thing that, I, that that's most extraordinary about your books that you don't see in a lot of other books is you really are taking the time to humanize these people. Um, you're you're expressing the fact that that they have emotions, that they are real people, that they're not they're different than us, but not so different in a lot of ways. If that makes sense. <laughs> well, of course they want to survive just like you do. Uh, but they have to deal with this situation that they're in, and yeah. it's it's unrelenting. Which, uh, in in a way, you you learn to sympathize with, because you would have to learn how to deal with the situation. If you were in their shoes, you'd have to learn how to deal with it too. Um, just like we have to deal with life, things come our way, and we have to learn how to deal with it. We have to learn how to live with it. We have to learn to, to accept the actions involved in that situation. Um, and those are very good things to express. Listeners, just so that you're aware, you're listening to Paranormal Truth and Reality. We are on with author Doug Robinson. Doug Robinson actually has written a series of vampire novels, if you've been listening, that are very extraordinary. We're going to talk about here in the last five minutes where to find those. We are on BBS Radio. BBS Radio is one of the largest digital radio stations in the world. So I would encourage you, if you're going to go with the best, contact Donald. Go with BBS Radio. In additional announcements, we just came back from filming at Octagon Hall. And guess what? You are, in fact, going to see me sleeping like a baby in a claimed haunted bed. Uh, in additional news, uh, because I know a few people are going to get a kick out of that, we're actually going to be out at several events, and we're going to be announcing a couple of things, one of which is the addition to telling you the stories from first responders across the United States of America. So I want you to tune into that, because we're actually going to create some news programs and other things attached to Paranormal Truth and Reality, not here on BBS until I talk to Donald, but we'll probably dub that over as well where we're going to be interviewing some of these first responders at locations such as Nebraska, Louisiana, flooding areas, and so forth, to give you the real stories from the real people and the real responders so that we can get help out where it's needed. This was brought to you, by the way, about five or six months ago, maybe a little bit later, when we realized, first responders that are friends of mine that went over to California and myself, that people like Donald and BBS were hit by, by fires across California. It's very, very important that America understands that this affects human people. 
and then in addition affecting those human people, a lot of things you do not see on television, which kinks up natural living for many, many years for a lot of people. We're going to jump back in here, and uh, we're going to talk to Douglas a little bit here in the last five or six minutes or so. Douglas, where can we find your books? If you search by my name, Douglas Robinson, uh, there is another Douglas Robinson who writes, but you have to add the phrase, the silently series storyline. And if you search for that, you should be able to find them on Amazon or Kindle. Now, the storylines are very extraordinary. I do encourage you to uh, read all of them. In fact, I hope, Douglas, somewhere along the line that you actually get a chance to portray these in media or television because I think they would make an extraordinary series, to be frankly honest with you. And we see a lot of those out there now, but here seems to be a little bit more humanized than most people, so it would be fun to, to be able to turn on the TV one day and say, hey, you know what, I talked to him, and now now he's putting his his, his show on TV. <laughs> The thing that makes them accessible to me is that I can hear them when they cry. Well, that's actually a very good sentimental note for everybody to remember, especially if you're a young writer yourself. Understand that writing those stories is very personal to your heart. And when you're expressing the stories, whether they're real people, whether they're not real people or otherwise, they become a very real part of your life. Uh, and I can I can actually attest to that because I have written several books, one that's going to be coming out here after a while. One is just all education, so I really didn't have to put much thought into that. And I've got the great benefit of creating comic book history, um, and every character I've ever designed is a part of my life. Um, it's a part of I, – I, I do kind of differently, though my characters write themselves. I uh, actually put a little bit of – myself and other people into the stories without them really knowing. So anything that's ever touched my heart goes into that story somehow. <laughs> yes, that that is an interesting process because they do become part of you. They do, absolutely. Well, we will actually let you off if you're on BBS Radio tonight, but I'm going to end this the way I do every single night. We've had the wonderful privilege of talking to an author about a subject we generally don't talk about, but it does touch base in the paranormal, and it's very important that people understand that um, authors take very good care and very good time into writing a situation that can affect you as a person one way, shape, or form. So in the paranormal, as I say every single week, whether it be related directly to things like ghosts or spirits or whether it be something that's a little bit more mythological that could be true, such as vampires, understand that truth should always be that reality. Never be afraid to reach out of your envelope a little bit when you're reading these books and ask a few more questions. I'm sure if people would reach out to Douglas and he had the time, he would be more than glad to express how his characters are real and how you how to deal with life if you ever run into a situation like that. And those are the key things to remember. You've been listening to BBS Radio Paranormal Truth and Reality. We'll let you off here, and we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the show.